This episode of New Politics was released on the 9th of December, 2023, and produced on the lands of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the government wants to resolve its immigration detention issues, so it's creating bad legislation as a result. Is Labor really that terrible in selling its own messages, or is it just selective hearing from the media? The situation in Gaza is getting worse, but there's no right to protest in Australia. Paying out for Bruce Lerman's defamation case. And the end of Parliament for the year. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Ellen Jones's defamation advisor. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. coming up to the end of the year in federal politics but there's still a few more dramas to round up the year and it doesn't matter what part of the year it is there's always something going on in politics and the issue that has been blown out of all proportion is the legislation in response to the high court decision that indefinite detention of asylum seekers and stateless people is unlawful and there's been a mad scramble to get legislation in place which is what happened before parliament finished for the year and Anything to do with immigration and asylum seekers is the place where we get the worst possible laws. And that's because the coalition politicises immigration and asylum seekers as much as possible, creates incredibly draconian legislation and in some cases unlawful legislation. And when Labor is in office, they do the same so that they can avoid being wedged on the issue. And it's the worst possible way to make any kind of legislation. The interesting thing about Australian immigration law is that we're actually one of the few countries that have legislation governing immigration. Most countries are policy and they say, well, we need to, for replacement rates, we need 100,000 people. And of these 100,000 people, we need so many trained people. There'll be so many family, whatever the criteria is, making it a lot easier to control politically. Whereas Australia, we have not only, I think, immigration legislation, but some of the most complex and tricky immigration as well, in that the minister, and this was tested in the courts last year, has the right to overturn any decision. Now, I believe that this is the right thing because it's some, no matter how well you set up even a policy, there will always be an honourable exception that might make you think, well, actually, okay, usually the law would stand in this way, but in this case we'll have to override it for whatever reason. Now, that, of course, is a power that gets abused. Thankfully, not as often as we might think, but certainly immigration in Australia is a little bit more complex than in other countries. I don't think they're terribly admirable systems, to be fair, but from a government point of view, it's fairly easy. Here, of course, it's difficult. And you're right, Labor doesn't seem to want to take it on. Now, of course, multiculturalism, which Labor introduced as a policy, was a massive success till 1996. It still is a success. Walk through any 
Sydney suburb, any Melbourne suburb, walk through a lot of country towns and you will see the fruits of multiculturalism. People of all different backgrounds living peacefully together, working peacefully together without any problems as to where they were from or what they're doing, provided, of course, you're obeying the law, which... 95% of people do obey the law. And again, multiculturalism isn't perfect, but it was an extremely effective and useful policy. And it's something that Labor should look at highlighting in a much more positive way. And the issues of national security, asylum seekers and immigration, this seems to be the safe political playground for the coalition. And they are always looking for an opportunity to ramp this issue up create the fear and loathing on these issues, make people fearful of being overrun by asylum seekers. And everything just seems to be narrowed down to keeping the community safe from outsiders. And all of this is like political kryptonite for the Labor government. They will do whatever they need to do to downplay this issue. They will do whatever they need to do to remove it as a political issue and just hope that it all somehow goes away. And it doesn't really matter what it does. Even if they put up the toughest and the most draconian laws that they could ever think of or that anyone could think of in the world, it will always be made to look weak by the coalition and by the media generally, who are only too happy to ramp this issue up as well. And it's not like this is a new situation. This has been going on since at least 1998, and even way before then in the 1950s during the Cold War era, the coalition is always happy to ramp up national security and the fear of outsiders for political gain. And maybe it's not even for political gain. This is It's just that this is who they naturally are, racist ideologues who have just got a fear of everything that's just on the other side of the border. It's been a trope since 1820. The Chinese are coming to invade us. Well, they've had, what, 200 years, nothing's happened so far. I know that the Chinese government can move slowly, and and we've had several Chinese governments and uh, empires between then and now, and all of them apparently have had the exact same policy on Australia, yet none of them have acted. There's always time, David. Yeah, I've just got to be patient, I know. We had the whole African gang things which Christopher Pine inadvertently destroys by in a press conference. Someone asked how dinner was in Melbourne. He said, it was lovely. Oh, wait, I wasn't supposed to go out, wasn't I? (laughs) And it's the same people pushing these narratives. And we keep listening to them for some reason, or not everyone, but they keep getting the same press, the same attention. Yet time and time and time again, it's been proved that most immigrants to the country are a net positive in terms of what happens with the economy, in terms of what happens with community, in terms of what happens with jobs, in terms of what happens with just plain old good feeling in the street. And yet, small-minded, racist nobodies keep controlling the narrative. Well, the other narrative is that the government wasn't actually prepared for this, and politically, they weren't really prepared. Now, If you know the history of how the coalition behaves on asylum seeker issues and on national security, even if there was just a 1% chance of the High Court overturning that ruling from 2004, well, you just got to be prepared, 100%. So that the minute the High Court ruling is made, if it's not what you expected, at least you've got the political response ready to go and the legislative response as well. And this is the basic principle of politics, always be 
prepared. So they could have avoided a lot of problems if they were highly prepared on this. And the issue has been magnified out of all proportion, in my opinion. The government looks like it didn't know what it was doing. And a lot of this will end up creating some very draconian legislation. And they'll probably start calling for the execution of asylum seekers. That's about the only place that they will be able to go to from here. But this is the end result of being unprepared, hastily created legislation that only makes matters worse. And the other basic principle of politics is to have a list of diversions when you do come across political problems. And the Liberal Party are really good at this. Whenever they have political problems, whether they're in government or in opposition, they always create a diversion. And the big issue that they normally take on is start talking about nuclear energy or small modular reactors or transgender issues or border security or migrants or some kind of issue to distract the attention of the media and the electorate. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, David, Labor is generally good in governing and managing, but lousy at the politics, whereas the Liberal National Coalition has got that the other way around. But good government is also about the good political management as well. And in certain areas, they're just not doing that very well at all. I suppose a new government has to learn the ropes, even when they have experienced ministers. Circumstances change. There's a lot to fix. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we just let them go and let them make mistake after mistake after mistake till they finally get it right. We still have to hold them to account. And I know that ministers and the minister's staff who listen to us know that we mean nothing personal. They even think we're wrong in some cases, and, and that's perfectly fine. Well, how could we ever be wrong, David? I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. We still need to hold governments to account. I note the narrative, and I'm not quite sure where this came from, about how the woke high court just let all these criminals out. And I'm thinking, do you know who appointed most of the justices on the high court? And most of their political opinions are not what you would call woke. The high court acted in a way which was accordance with the constitution, as it should, and the high court should be commended for keeping the constitution at its core, even if we don't like the fact that the constitution can't be changed. The constitution is what the high court judges on. And the justices in the high court determined that the indefinite detention went against what the constitution upholds, which is no charge without arrest, no detention without charge. And I note there was big play in the press this week over four asylum seekers who were criminals who escaped and w were caught. Sure, that's working within the laws of Australia, so I don't see what the problem is because even the most obtuse and stubborn of the anti-refugee mob would understand that not every refugee is a criminal. In fact, less than the, the usual populace of refugees have broken the law. And sometimes when they break the law, it is for contextual reasons, which aren't helped by things like permanent detention and the treatment of people in asylum. Yeah, you break the law, yes, consequences. But what laws are being broken and why are they being broken? We should look at that too. And of course, I understand one of them was some of the most awful and heinous acts should be punished, should be sent into an Australian jail. Wrong is wrong and will always be wrong. And in a related area, there has been commentary about how the Labor government is terrible at communicating their messages through the media, and this is one issue that was being discussed this week. And 
I think this is one of those myths that needs to be explored. And whoever is in government, they provide the same kinds of media releases. They give the same types of media conferences in the same locations at Australian Parliament House. It's usually the same groups of journalists, the same television crews, the same reporters, yet somehow the government has a problem pushing forward its narrative. And as far as I'm concerned, the problem is with the way that the information is being reported. And if you have a dispassionate look at transcripts of media conferences held by ministers from the Labor government and then compare them with those media conferences from when the coalition was in government, the words from those transcripts and the key points that they bring up are very, very similar, whether it's on the economy, on education, the environment, or on health, or on immigration. And looking at the conversations, the same key points are being made. And of course, from a different ideological perspective, but the events seem to be very similar. And the same criticisms were made of the Rudd and Gillard governments, but it's not as though there's a new team of journalists that comes in when there's a change of government. All of those people are still there. And for sure, it is up to the Labor government to bypass this situation but essentially, it gets back to the narrative that the mainstream media is choosing to run with, and the government can't really control this. Yeah. Well, they could control it by treating the mainstream media the way they deserve to be treated, reviewing all media licences and bringing in stringent conditions as to how a media should work. And that's not to say that the media should be a mouthpiece for the government. The media should criticise the government, but it should be fair. It should be, if the government is corrupt, show that the government is corrupt. If the government is doing an okay job but could be better, that's fine too. More stringent media requirements don't mean that this stuff stops. It just means that there's a slightly higher standard as to how you criticise. It should be based on truth or a reasonable conclusion from the truth. We've had too long of rabid media saying things that just weren't accurate and having that be seen as government policy from the broader population. Australia can't afford this. And the Labor government really has to work out a way of bypassing the mainstream media in the same way that Daniel Andrews did through social media in Victoria. And there is a reason why there was a massive disconnect between the incessant media attacks on Daniel Andrews and the Victoria Labor government and the electoral success that they had in the 2018 and the 2022 Victoria elections. And that's because their messages were bypassing News Corporation, bypassing Nine Media, bypassing Seven West Media, and directly engaging with voters through social media and their own networks. And I'm not saying that the federal Labor government isn't doing this, but it's just not doing enough of it. And the media generally crucifies Labor when they're in government. It's unfair. It's not conducive to progressive policies or for making the radical changes that do need to be made at this point of time. But that's just the way that it is. And the Labor government needs to give Daniel Andrews a call. And I know that he's retired somewhere on a golf course, but Dan, tell us how you did it. Give us the formula. Show us how to bypass the mainstream media. And we've also said this before as well. Stop giving the respect to the mainstream media that it's done nothing to deserve. And there was a media conference during the week, and this was the exchange between the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, and a News Corporation journalist. Do you owe an apology to those in the community that have been subjected to misdeeds by some of these individuals? I want to suggest to you that that question is an absurd question. You are asking a Cabinet Minister, three Ministers of the Crown, to apologise for upholding the law of Australia, for acting in accordance with 
the law of Australia, for following the instructions of the High Court of Australia. I will not be apologising for upholding the law. I will not be apologising for pursuing the rule of law, and I will not be apologising for acting. Do not interrupt. I will not be apologising for acting. I will not be apologising for acting in accordance with a High Court decision. Your question is an absurd one. This became the story. Dreyfus shouts at Sky News female journalists. And Susan Lay, the deputy leader of the Liberal Party, she ran the message about how the Labor Party treats women. There's a court case on at the moment about how the Liberal Party treats women. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. And, you know, nice bit of irony there. But then the following day, Mark Dreyfus offered an apology. And I thought, what are you apologising for? It was a ridiculous question. It was a politically motivated question asked pretty much on behalf of the Liberal Party and it got the response that it deserved. And Mark Dreyfus apologises. He shouldn't have apologised. It looked weak. It looked like Sky News controls the agenda. So Sky News never asked for an apology from the Coalition government for all of those secret ministries or for all of their rorts and incompetence. But they get an apology for a minister shouting, allegedly, at one of their journalists. It's quite pathetic, really. How would she have coped with a Paul Keating withering attack on stupid questions. I admired people like Daniel Andrews who'd put up with the same stupid question every day from the same reporters and answer them professionally, quietly and calmly. Julia Gillard actually was pretty good at that too. John Howard would snap it at reporters where he didn't, he, he did it less than Keating did. Howard, I think, understood in a sense that he still had to be political in a way that Keating was a head kicker in a way. Howard wasn't, although both men were capable of both being head kickers and being the diplomats when required. It was pointed out that Mark Dreyfus's wife of many years died very sadly and tragically about a month ago. And so that may have been a factor in his losing his cool. But again, how more politicians just don't call out stupid and pointless questions. Fair questions, if, he, if she'd asked a fair question and a reasonable question and he'd snapped at her, okay, sure, his wife died and that's really sad and we send our condolences, but not really acceptable. But it wasn't a great question. She's not yet a good journalist and this type of thing might help her become a better one. So I think generally there does need to be tighter media management by the Labor government, probably more innovation with their media conferences. And why invite the people who are just there to crucify the Labor government? Why give them the ammunition when all they're going to do is fire it back at you or make things up? So what they probably should do is set up preferred journalists, put the ones that are annoying on the blacklist, don't invite them, play psychological games with them. The Coalition used to do this all the time with their favourite journalists, and maybe they could do that because there's so many pro-Liberal Party journalists in the mainstream media, but it is obvious that the mainstream media never works in the interests of the Labor Party or the Labor government. It never works in the interests of working people. It's all about supporting big business interests, powerful people, and support for conservative politics and it's always antagonistic and it was a similar situation with the Rudd and the Gillard governments. The media generally gave them a bit of leeway for the first year and then started framing the attacks and now they're starting the same process with the Albanese government and the mainstream media isn't going to change and if anything they're actually going to get worse but the Labor government can change. It can change the way that it gets its message out there in the same way that Daniel Andrews did and it should do this as soon as possible. 
The Liberal Party, it goes right back to when it was the United Australia Party. The Lions government would hold Friday night drinks with senior journalists. This is back in 1931. And they wouldn't necessarily, they might put a policy announcement out or some new legislative reform they were doing, but mostly it was just a chance to make journalists feel a bit less hostile to the government. Now, there was some management to be done with Lyons. He'd uh, been a Labor Party treasurer and had defected to the other side. But certainly it was a trick that they learned very, very quickly. And Lyons could get away with such nonsense as the federal budget is like a uh, budgeting a household. Absolute nonsense. Nothing like that at all. And Lyons went overseas a lot more than was probably warranted at that time as well. So it was a tactic that worked. And really, it's a tactic that they've kept up. Sometimes openly, when Tony Abbott became Prime Minister, he had a group of favoured journalists and opinion writers go to a dinner at Kirribilli House. Malcolm Turnbull was good at that. Kevin Rudd also tried it. I think it's better that they don't know each other. And then so an interview can be less fraught with personal loyalties and, and biases from genuinely nice people and people who you might get on with, but who you have to be really critical. For. I don't know. And this is maybe where they start. They start by not being friendly to the journalists or being professional and courteous, absolutely, but not being friendly as such. The ball they have, the midwinter ball, is just a awful display of how privilege and parliament and press work in this country. Yet it's so entrenched, it doesn't occur to anybody to think maybe this isn't such a good idea. And this is also in the context of good economic news for the government, which has not been widely reported, but interest rates have been put on hold by the Reserve Bank. The inflation rate is lower than expected. It's currently at 5.4%, and that's under the world average of 6.8%. So inflation is coming down and tipped to come down even further in 2024. Unemployment is low, the budget is in surplus, wages have increased by 4%, but because that increase is lower than inflation, that effectively is a wage cut. So there are still some issues there, but the economy seems to be performing better than what we keep hearing in the media. And if these figures were being delivered by a coalition government, we would never hear the end of how good these figures are. But political success is based around reality and what the electorate feels is happening within the economy, not what the mainstream media keeps telling us. One of the narratives that Labor seems to have lost is that the Rudd and Swan policies saved Australia from the devastation that was the GFC, which nearly destroys places like Spain, Italy, Greece and Portugal and completely damages Britain, completely damages the United States. Australia is one of the few countries that gets through unscathed. I don't know why the current government doesn't continue saying, hey, look, we missed the GFC, and with our policies, we will be able to avoid the recession. Instead, the talk we seem to be getting is, oh, there's a recession coming, and we will try and ameliorate it, which is fine too, but why not try and avoid it altogether? And it goes back to, I think, Labor's fear of communicating properly. You only get one Morrison government in a lifetime, I would argue, like Kerry Packer said about Alan Bond. You might only get one Peter Dutton, but they're only one change away from having someone who could catch up, if not next election, then the election after. And suddenly Labor's in the position that the Liberal Party seems to be now. And I think this does get back to that issue of the narrative. And we've been talking about the narrative quite a lot today. 
all the stories that the electorate believes. And the economy is in relatively good health, as I've explained before, and there are those issues. But if the electorate can see that it's improving and if their lived experience is better than what the media and the coalition keeps telling them, well, that's all that matters. And sorry for referring back to Daniel Andrews again, even though he's left politics, but it was the same issue there. All the bile and pathological hatred for Daniel Andrews and the constant talking down of Melbourne and Victoria that was coming from News Corporation and from Nine Media and from the ABC, that wasn't the experience of most of the electorate in Melbourne. And Melbourne is one of the best cities in the world to live in, according to a lot of international polls. And that lived experience didn't match up to what the electorate was being told by the media and we won't know for sure until the next federal election but right now we only have opinion polls and the resolve poll released this week suggests that support for the Labor government is at 55% and 45% for the coalition so it seems that there is a bit of a disconnect between that narrative in the mainstream media in their parallel universe and what's going on in the real world. Even if Peter Dutton was a beloved and revered figure, which I think even his staunchest supporters would say that's not quite true, it would still be at least two elections barring some kind of freakish catastrophe in Labor before the uh, Liberal Party would have a shot at winning. And 1943, the Liberal Party was in this, or what becomes the Liberal Party was in this position. They lose the 46 election and they win the 49 election. And that was with the uh, loved and revered Bob Menzies. Now, I'll be fair, he wasn't loved and revered in 44, 45, 46. Well, not, definitely not by me, but I wasn't there at the time, so. <laughs> <laughs> but even in the broader community. But he was competent. He spoke well. He was able to project an image of stability and all the things and respectability and all the things that the electorate desired at the time. And it still took him two elections. Some might argue it should have taken three. And of course, there are those of you out there who say you shouldn't have won any. That's fine too. But the thing they seem to be avoiding is that the Liberal Party is not in its best place. The 96 Howard cabinet was one of the best cabinets in terms of its talent and its ability. In terms of its policy, that's a whole other debate. It had some very good people in it. The first Morrison cabinet was best described as rabble. <laughs> so Labor should be able to capitalise on this. And for whatever reason, and it's, a lot of it's to do with certain elements of the press deciding to ignore it. And that's where Labor should become more aggressive and change media ownership laws and change the conditions under which you can have a media license. You bring in truth in political advertising laws, bring in truth in politics laws, bring in truth in media laws before you say, but all those jobs will be lost. Some of them shouldn't be round, but also a lot of the jobs that will be lost will be taken up by the replacements which should lead us to better press, ultimately. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon.
And we were a little bit optimistic last week when we said that we were hoping for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and that's been broken by the Israel Defence Forces and they've offered a wide range of excuses for this but the fact is that more Palestinian people are being killed by Israel, more women and children are dying and there's a new humanitarian crisis developing. Here's James Elder from UNICEF outlining what's happening there. Let's talk about safe zones. They risk being zones of disease and human suffering. Let me explain why. These zones are tiny patches of barren land with no water, no facilities, no shelter from the cold and the rain, no sanitation. Currently in a shelter in Gaza, there's around one toilet for 400 children and families. In these safe zones, there will be no toilet and it's tens of thousands of people. As a doctor told me, these so-called safe zones will be zones of disease. For safe zones to be safe, they must, by law, have water, food, medical supplies and shelter. For safe zones to be safe, people have to feel safe enough to travel there, expecting hundreds of thousands of people to relocate again and again in the middle of a war with no pause in fighting is simply unworkable. For safe zones to be safe, people have to feel safe while they are there. After being instructed to move south at the beginning of the conflict, thousands of people died, including United Nations staff. Given the catastrophe children are enduring right now, the only safety in Gaza is for the hell to stop raining down from the sky. Only a ceasefire can save the children of Gaza. So these are the issues that are still continuing on the ground. And as we keep saying each week, it has to end and the international community needs to take more decisive action about Israel and its actions in Gaza and the West Bank. And not just now, but well into the future as well. And Young Labor, not that they've got much control here, but Young Labor also passed a resolution calling for the federal government to support permanent ceasefire and for Israel to follow international law, which they haven't been doing for a long, long time. And young Albanese, when he was in Young Labor, he would have supported this. And that's when he was a prominent member of the hard left faction. And there's also 40 Labor branches that have passed a similar resolution as well. And there's a broad representation of current Labor MPs supporting this sentiment, although with a softer message. Here's the Labor MP, Stephen Jones, in Parliament this week. I'm aware of calls for the end to the war. I wholeheartedly support and add my voice to this. Peace must prevail in the region through a two-state solution where Israelis and Palestinians can live securely and peacefully within internationally recognised borders. There is no long-term solution to the hostility in the Middle East unless these things are realised. And we can keep sending these messages of support or telling everyone that the war has to end, but it's the actions on the ground that matter. And so far, we're not seeing that. We're living in an upside-down world in which a political idea can be taken to represent a whole people. The US Congress passed a law equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, which one doesn't really show an understanding of what Semitism is. But two is the equivalent of saying that 
any criticism of the Republican Party in the United States is a criticism of the whole country and is a, a form of treason. You can see why this is dangerous and why it's been poorly thought through. Again, the Israeli government has given its reasons, many of which are contradictory and inconsistent and not very strong. It's not about every single person of Jewish background. It's about a corrupt political party or a coalition of corrupt political parties trying to hold on to control in Israel to avoid serious consequences. The same in Palestine. Hamas is in a similar position. And it is the innocent from both sides who are paying. And it, there's disproportion in everything. And I'm not trying to downplay that either. I think that pro-Zionist side, and more accurately, because there are Zionists who don't agree with what's going on either, but that pro-Netanyahu side is running short of defences, of moral defence, intellectual defence, of verbal defence, and are just trying anything. We hope that they'll go back into ceasefire, because I don't know what's going to happen if they don't. And of course, this is still a big issue in Australia. And we've mentioned before that there is a sizable Jewish community that is opposed to the war in Gaza and what Israel is doing right now and has been doing in the past. But it's just taken a while for their voices to be heard. And here's the publisher, Louise Adler, discussing this issue and the behaviour of the Zionist lobby group in Australia. It comes from my own long history in the arts and cultural space and my um, engagement with the Israel lobby. It goes all the way back to the early 2000s when the Israeli ambassador decided um, or demanded a meeting with me, a private meeting with me, after I'd written a review of Edward Said's memoirs. And he demanded that I not air Israel's dirty linen in public. That was one of my early experiences of being told that um, we don't talk about Israel and our criticism of Israel in the public sphere. Fast forward a few, a decade perhaps, and when I publish a book by Anthony Lowenstein about the Israel lobby, uh, federal MPs feel it's incumbent upon them to write to the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne and demand, demand that I be sacked. And then let's fast forward to Adelaide Writers' Week when um, we decide that it is important to feature Palestinian literary culture as part of our program. And the Israel lobby decided that was reprehensible, that the view, they did not like the views of individual Palestinians. They didn't approve of them. And let's take them seriously. They have every right not to approve of those, um, those Palestinian writers and their views on the current state of, um, you know, state in the Middle East. And they're perfectly entitled to those views, but they were not entitled, in my view, to say that those, those Palestinian writers should not therefore be included in a, a literary festival celebrating a very rich literary and literary culture that was Palestinian. Palestinian literary culture. There was a barrage of letters to the Adelaide Festival Board. There were letters and um, op-eds and uh, news articles in all the media, but particularly in News Limited, that went on and on for days. There was um, demands on sponsors that they withdraw their funding from Adelaide Festival. And there, were, there was pressure put on the Premier of, New South, of, of South Australia, even. It went that far. And thankfully, the board was resolute, the Adelaide Festival was resolute, that this was an opportunity for people to hear Palestinians talk about their writing. It is important and it is vital for us not to look away, that we all have a choice, that the world looked away during the Second World War and Jews, six million of our people, were murdered in that looking away, and that it is incumbent upon humanity to look at what is happening in Gaza now and to say, we will not accept this. We will say no, not in our name. 
So I think it is important to understand that there are many Jewish people who are not supportive of the Israel government, as you mentioned before, David, or of Benjamin Netanyahu, and are happy to expose the behaviour of the Zionist lobby in Australia and overseas. And just like any other group of people, there's always going to be a wide range of different opinions. And it's just that on Israel, we haven't had too many or we haven't heard too many of those other voices. And there was also an incident in the inner west of Sydney where Anthony Albanese was launching a new park in Ashfield and a woman with her six-month-old baby was holding up a sign with a watermelon logo on it with the words shame elbow on it as well. And in case you're wondering, the watermelon has been used in those many cases where the Palestinian flag has been banned or restricted and the green, red and the black seeds of the watermelon are the same colours as the Palestinian flag and, you know, you can hardly ban a watermelon. So this was a peaceful protest and a sign of resistance, but she was mishandled while she was holding her baby and the watermelon sign and she was removed by police. So I'm pretty sure that young Albanese would have been flying the Palestinian flag probably sharing slices of watermelon at the socialist resistance meetings. But 40 years on, when it really matters, he can't even bear to look at a woman holding up a sign of a Palestinian resistance and gets her removed by police. And it just seems to me that Albanese has forgotten where he came from and who he is. And just because you become the prime minister, it doesn't mean that you lose your sense of decency. Times change. People soften over time. People harden over time. They tend to get a little bit more conservative. And the person who Anthony Albanese was at 25 is necessarily different to the person that he is at 60. But it's still disappointing to see that he hasn't been able to show the humanity that I'm sure he's struggling with showing because the Australian government has determined various alliances, etc. Protest should be allowed. I've said this before. Disruptive, sure. Uncomfortable, sure. Violent, no. Destructive, no. But to manhandle her away without explanation, it was clearly an act of retaliation for holding up a sign. A young radical Anthony Albanese would have been the first one to her defence. I think. The older Anthony Albanese may not have been the first one to her defence, but he would have at least seen, yes, she's protesting and I used to do this and she's not actually harming anyone and her voice is just as important as every other voice. Meanwhile in Ballarat, <laughs> Nazis. So that's all right then. There we have both sides. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programmes. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon.
And there were a few other issues in federal politics. The Bruce Lerman trial continues and it's been revealed that the ABC has paid $150,000 to Lerman's legal team and that's Mark O'Brien Legal. They're the go-to legal firm for Liberal Party identities and News Corporation has paid an additional $295,000 and this is to settle this whole process out of court and we've been advised that when you've got a law firm that is as litigious as Mark O'Brien Legal, it's best to pay them off so that they just go away and shut up. But even still, this really is an outrageous waste for the ABC. News Corporation, well, they can do whatever they like with their money, but for the ABC, I think that was just quite unacceptable. So this defamation case, well, that's still proceeding up until December the 18th, but the most interesting insight for me has been the behaviour and actions of all of these 20-something political advisors and David, they just really do seem to be wet behind the ears. And once you see that video footage from the bars and the nightclubs that's been provided in this legal case, you get a better idea of why the coalition government was so inept during their time in office. And they've got all these people working there who are totally inexperienced and just totally out of their depth. I've been watching, as many of you have, the court case, and I'm not going to comment on what I think is the judge has been rightly quite hardline on people commenting on the on the trial. I will say that once it happened, there were a lot of people who didn't know what to do. A lot of people wouldn't know what to do. It's a horrible, horrible situation. And I'm not implying anyone's guilt or innocence here. I do know that something happened to Brittany Higgins. Her story's been completely consistent within the bounds of a traumatic experience. There's been a few inconsistencies, but nothing that you wouldn't expect. The witnesses that I saw yesterday were all on top of things. And there were a few who were clearly very professional and did know more or less what to do, but were stopped from doing it. But when you look at the average age of these advisors, they're not very old. And some of this stuff just takes years and years of observance. You can't learn it from a book. You can't learn it from a university. And I'm not disparaging either books or universities or training, but there's just some stuff that you can only learn from being and doing, and you need a lot more experience than a lot of these people are able to bring. So when something horrible and out of the ordinary happens, it's panic. The wheels of government don't swing in, partly because they're not listening to the wheels of government. And again, I'm not pointing at any witness in particular. A lot of the witnesses yesterday were highly impressive as witnesses and were professional and were clear as to what was happening. And, you know, but a lot of them were very young. And as you say, they presented very well, they presented very professionally and articulately and all that sort of thing. But I just get the feeling that too many of these young advisors have been watching too many episodes of West Wing and that's probably where they're getting all of their political knowledge or experience from or possibly watching House of Cards as well. That's a good series. What I recommend they do is actually watch a few episodes of The Thick of It or Utopia on the ABC. They'll probably get a better idea of what it's really like from watching that. But watching... This defamation case streaming on YouTube, it's almost been like watching an episode of West Wing that seriously got out of control. And and there is a reason why you're getting a lot of these younger, less experienced staff working there. The wages are really low, there's really long hours, and the nature of the work involved is quite laborious and tedious as well. But they've also got the drive, the naivety, and they're a little bit starstruck as well, whereas the older people are more cynical about the process, they're more savvy about politics and probably have more financial and 
family responsibilities. There's a lot of burnout. That's probably why you're getting so many of these younger staffers. But aside from all of this, we just have to remember that a woman was sexually assaulted in a minister's office Mm. in Parliament House. And this isn't the rape trial itself. This is a civil case, but this is what women have to go through in a rape trial, essentially. They have to relive and recount the story again and again and again. They're accused of lying. They're accused of misrepresenting the facts. All of the intimate personal details are exposed. It's a process of slut-shaming. The allusions to wearing the clothing that provoked a man. Were you drunk? Were you dressed? Were you naked on the couch in the minister's office? And this part of the trial has been totally offensive and many people have been shocked by what they've seen through the live stream of the case but this is what happens in rape trials every single day all around the country and there is a strong case to make legal reforms in this area to make trials that involve sexual assaults a whole lot easier for the complainant and provide a better chance of achieving justice and again this is not a criminal trial it's a civil case but there are similarities in the details that have been revealed and and still it's an ongoing case it ends on December the 18th but there's a lot of issues that are unresolved in this case there's a lot of unexplained events that just don't make any sense there's a lot of covering up as well there's still the issue of Bruce Lerman being a 23 year old nobody at the time who claims that he was on the verge of being recruited as an ASIO agent which you're not meant to tell anyone anyway so he might not have ended up being a very good spy either. If he was under consideration to be a, a an agent for ASIO, he's not now. He's too well known and he won't be forgotten in a hurry. One of the things that struck me is, and when I say I don't know what the solution is, I'm not saying so we should just keep it. The system of how we deal this with this stuff in court has to change. Again, I don't know how. I'm not expert enough in trauma and I'm not expert enough in legal proceedings to be able to say, well, how about we do it this way or that way? For Brittany Higgins to go through the criminal trial, have that thrown out because of the actions of someone, probably the juror, but there's been talk that it was other factors at play, not to do with the judges, by the way. And then to have her sit through it again while we go through the shock and horror of a mid-20s woman going out drinking on a Friday night, because that never happens. A young woman making life choices that maybe she regretted, maybe she didn't. It's not up to us. But a young woman who certainly did nothing legally wrong and having to relive the trauma again and again and again and again and again and to be treated in such a way that everything she did was thrown into doubt is just not right. Now, I'm not saying that the plaintiff doesn't have the right to take this to court. As distasteful as many of us may find it, he does have that right. And if we start taking the right off him, who else do we take the right off? And the plaintiff also has the presumption of innocence and that it is prosecution who have to prove him guilty. He now has to prove the victim guilty. And this is where I find it just so wrong. So yeah, I, I, the, the way we deal with these types of cases legally, where we give proper protections to the accused because the accused needs to have the presumption of innocence. But more importantly, we protect the traumatized victim from having to go through this, through this type of experience, which is, you know, the more important thing. If nothing else, this case has shown that serious reform is needed.
Parliament has now ended for the year and there was a flurry of activity. The laws for preventative immigration detention were passed, legislation about labour hire firms, wage theft and other industrial relations changes were also passed. There was the release of the NDIS report, which will be looked into next year. There were also condolences to Peter Murphy, the Labor member for Dunkley, who died from breast cancer during the week, and our condolences to the family of Peter Murphy. So there was a lot going on in the final week of Parliament, and everyone was just keen to wrap up the year and get back home, I think. It's just been a very big year. It hasn't been a good year in many ways. There's been a lot of disappointment, a lot of horrible things happen. And it was a year that I think we all came into with a large sense of optimism and we're crawling towards the end hoping that next year can be better. At least next year should be better. And the year refuses to die too. Each day it seems there's something else come out that requires attention and shows where well reform is needed and shows where things are failing. We can only hope that next year is better. Oh, well, they're also, well, just getting back to the parliamentary way, because the House of Representatives wasn't actually meant to be sitting, but there were complaints from the Senate that there was just too much legislation to look at and inspect. But ultimately, there were deals made with Jackie Lambie and David Pocock, and the government just wanted to have that preventative detention legislation implemented out of the way as soon as possible. And this is how you end up with bad laws. There just haven't been enough checks and balances. And for sure, the legislation is all drafted and checked by government lawyers to make sure that it's all legally correct and valid. But there just isn't enough time to check for unintended consequences. And all the other legislation, well, it was mainly industrial relations laws and bills that were split up so that the important parts could start in 2024 and the other parts could go through further Senate debate and negotiation and members of Parliament were annoyed that they had to come back to Canberra and deal with these laws but that's what the job is. If the Prime Minister says I want this legislation passed this week well they just have to turn up. That's their job and that's what they're paid to do. So maybe the threat to stay back during their holidays should be done more often we'd probably end up getting a lot more legislation passed through Parliament. I'm not sure if it would be any good or not, but we'd certainly end up getting a lot more legislation. The more that they can get done, in a sense, the better. Now, you can have too much legislation, I guess. I note one of the criticisms that the Abbott government had of the Gillard government is that it did too much legislation, and the Gillard government broke records in how much legislation it passed in its term, whereas the Abbott government passed barely any. I don't know that you can pass too much useful legislation. There's always something that needs tweaking. There's always something that needs loopholes that need closing, things that need adjusting. Circumstances change. I think we should have four weeks of sitting, two weeks to go back to your office in the electorate. I think that's probably a a, a good way of doing things. I don't know that our parliamentarians need any more fair recompense. They're amongst the highest paid in the world, and so we should start to demand value from them. So that's the end of the parliamentary week and the parliamentary year for 2023. We'll have a wrap-up of all the big political issues of the year over the next two weeks, and there's so many issues that we can't fit it all into one episode. And we've also got another book coming out next week, and that's about the big year in politics as well, and we'll provide all of the details for that next week, so look out for it. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. 
We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. <laughs>